How's that? Can you hear me now? It's directional. How's that? No? Can you hear me now? I'll, I'll try to speak up. Uh, I'm Stephen Ball. I teach at uh, Laterno University. I'm a physicist. I've been teaching in Christian higher education now for 17 years. And, uh, oh, I better bring up the... Um, do you still have my stick in there? Uh, that's just the shortcut uh, to the, my talk. We're going to be bringing up my talk, hopefully, momentarily. I appreciate you sticking around to hear this talk. Uh, it will be, uh, it won't be a long talk, but uh, hopefully you'll find it interesting. I've been dealing with the question of origins, as you might imagine, in some of my classes throughout my 17 years of teaching in Christian higher education. Origins questions have come up often, and uh, they're sensitive issues, as you might imagine, with uh, Christian young people, especially coming from very fundamental backgrounds. And so uh, I've recently found the, uh, oh, there's my wife. <laughs> but uh, I've recently discovered that the origin of the moon has been a very helpful um, picture for maybe understanding origins in general. And that's what I would like to, I'm, I'm not going to present anything really new to you today. What I'm presenting to you is pretty well known. And, but there's an analogy I would like to draw from our understanding of the origin of the moon that I, I think is very helpful to understanding origins in general. There it is. Thank you. Uh, that is the right, that's as good as we're going to get. So, uh, thank you. Um, so, I'm going to draw an analogy from looking at the origin of the moon and the origin of humanity. It's something that has been a hot topic and you'll hear more about tonight. Uh, I hope that you have a chance to go to uh, the Natural History Museum and see the display on human origins. Dr. Rick Potts will be speaking with us this evening. Uh, I'm not going to have a lot to say on that, uh, actually, but I, I think I would like to draw an analogy from our understanding of the origin of the moon with the origin of humanity. Now, briefly, why is the moon important? Uh, if you've had an introductory astronomy class, you know why. Uh, the, the moon is really something crucial for life here on Earth. Uh, first of all, the tide, the, the tides replenish the nutrients in the oceans here on Earth. And the tides also cause the moon to slowly spiral away from the Earth, now at a rate of about four centimeters a year. Uh, and perhaps just as important, the moon and its large angular momentum provides a stability for the Earth and its spin axis, which is tilted at 23 and a half degrees, uh, which provides uh, gentle seasonal effects here on Earth. If, if the moon weren't there, we'd have a, a perhaps a more uh, wildly oscillating uh, spin axis of the Earth occasionally, and we wouldn't have these gentle seasonal effects. So the moon is very important for life here on Earth. So understanding its origin becomes very important to us, and I think uh, it uh, 
it, and noticing that the other terrestrial planets do not have a large moon. It, it presents a very interesting question to us. And uh, this question has been considered uh, for quite a while. And I'm going to talk about uh, a few of the ideas early on on the origin of the moon. But first, I want to talk a little bit about a paradigm shift that took place during the 1960s. Prior to the 1960s, amongst the scientific community, there was a, a real bias against the, uh, presenting any scientific theory that had discontinuous processes or, or dramatic uh, events. Uh, there was a, a, a bias for gradual, continuous processes in every scientific theory. And so it wasn't considered good science if you had to throw something into the mix that, that caused a, a dramatic, discontinuous event. But two things happened in, in the 1960s to change our attitudes towards scientific theories. First was the discovery of the cosmic microwave background radiation in 1965 by Arno Penzias and Robert Wilson. It was completely by accident because uh, there was no uh, big-scale effort made to pursue uh, testing the, the Big Bang Theory. In fact, the steady-state theory was the favored theory of cosmology because it was based upon a gradual, continuous process. Uh, and uh, even Robert uh, Wilson, one of the co-discoverers of the cosmic microwave background radiation, he felt like the steady-state theory was, was perhaps the, the correct one. But when they discovered this radiation, uh, nearly all of the scientific community accepted the Big Bang as the, as the correct explanation for the origin of the universe. And so here's a discontinuous process right here. Secondly, what happened in the 1960s? Uh, the discovery of the Earth's magnetic field being, uh, undergoing reversals, dramatic reversals, on a uh, time scale of approximately once every 200,000 years or so. Now, this kind of discontinuous process of the Earth's magnetic field reversing led to verifying the theory of plate tectonics. And so two very important scientific theories emerged from the 1960s that, uh, that were not uh, favored by scientists at all prior to then because of this bias. So here we have a paradigm shift taking place. And now you can see what's, what's, what's coming in um, perhaps our understanding of the origin of the moon. Early ideas on the origin of the moon, uh, there were three major uh, ideas that were being pursued. One was the co-accretion model whereby the Earth and the Moon formed simultaneously from the same region of the protoplanetary disk. There's supposed to be a picture in there. Um, oh. Um, do, uh, bear with us for a second. We're, we're going to try to pull up a, a, another PowerPoint that has the pictures in it. And trust me, they're worth waiting for because they're good pictures. And uh, if my talk isn't a good one, at least the pictures are good. So uh, bear with me here on this one. Was there one more document in there? A document uh, on the, the origin of the moon? This is the copy-free one. Kamesh, you're the, I'm a Mac guy, and I'm lost on a piece. Okay. You need to get the stick back in. 
The stick's still in there, yeah. Well, let me continue. Uh, there's one more. That's that's the one. Oh, that's the shortcut. Well, I'm sorry. I, I guess I'll just have to go with this one then. Thank do, you, you. do you have it anywhere else? Do you have it anywhere else? No, I don't. It doesn't look like it. Well, I'm sorry. Let's just continue with this one. Thank you for trying. Okay. Um, we'll just continue with this with this particular PowerPoint slide. Uh, I had two different PowerPoints, one with some images that I didn't get uh, uh, permission to, to show all the pictures on, but uh, and one that uh, I did, and, and they're copyright free, and that's this one. So we'll go with this one. Okay, thank you. Now, the co-accretion model was something based all the way back from the studies of the, the French, like Laplace, continuing on to some Russian scientists later on who studied how uh, matter would accrete together under self-gravity while the solar system was forming and form large, subsequently larger and larger uh, protoplanets uh, and this uh, perhaps was, was an idea on how both the Earth and the Moon formed simultaneously out of the same matter, the same part of the protoplanetary disk. That was one idea. Another idea is the fission model that was promoted by the son of Charles Darwin. George Darwin promoted a fission model by, whereby the Earth was spinning so fast that the moon spun out of the early proto-Earth. There were problems with, with both of, of these models. Obviously, I, I'm not going to talk about all, these, uh, all the problems, but it would have had to have been spinning really fast, like once every two hours is, is the projected spin rate that would be necessary here. So um, it fell into disfavor eventually. And then uh, in the 20th century, Thomas Jefferson Jackson C. popularized the capture model, whereby the moon, uh, the moon was something formed in another part of the protoplanetary disk, another part of the solar system, and wandered in to, uh, close to the Earth, somehow dissipated enough energy, and got captured into orbit around the Earth. Uh, but uh, again, a lot of things would have had to have happened just right for for this to take place. So there were a lot of problems with every one of these models. But w one thing that these models had in common was they were all gradual, continuous processes that scientists uh, tended to favor. But they fell into two general categories. The first category was the, the terrestrial models, the co-accretion and the fission model because they both predicted strong similarities between the moon and the earth based upon the fact they were made out of the, the same material versus the extraterrestrial model, the capture model, which predicted very distinctive differences between the moon and the earth. And this is, we, we knew on the basis of analyzing meteorite samples, knowing that meteorite samples gave us different um, ratios of uh, isotopes and other various distinctive differences from Earth rocks. And so at least the, the model expectations fell in two very uh, differing and clear camps here. Pr 
prior to the Apollo missions to the moon. Now, the Apollo missions to the moon, for this very reason of trying to understand the origin of the moon, uh, putting this to the test of uh, which of these models could be correct, at least they gave some very definitive predictions and could be tested by it. And we returned from our six missions, successful missions to the moon. We collected 382 kilograms of lunar rocks and soil. And, and through analyzing those, we came to a very surprising discovery. And the surprising discovery was that there were very uh, strong similarities and distinctive differences between uh, lunar rocks and Earth rocks. For one thing, the oxygen isotope ratio turned out to be identical between uh, lunar rocks and Earth rocks and Earth mantle rocks. Uh, however, the lunar rocks were very different. They were extremely parched, nearly devoid of water and volatiles in general. Uh, and uh, enhanced with refractory elements. So the, it was, in fact, uh, if for all those people who are promoting the idea that, that uh, Apollo rigged this whole thing and we never went to the moon, uh, it would be much more difficult to, to come up with something like this than, than, than uh, to actually go to the moon and get them. So that's how different these rocks are compared to Earth rocks. So we, we did go to the moon. And uh, we, we've got uh, evidence uh, that you can put your hands on to this day of, of lunar rocks. So a very surprising thing happened. Uh, it didn't support any of those models, that the extraterrestrial models or the terrestrial models. Well, the paradigm shift was taking place in science during the 1960s. Now it was ready to take place in our ideas on the origin of the moon. So the origin of the moon, it must have involved both terrestrial and extraterrestrial elements. And so for the first time, we seriously considered perhaps a rare large impact model could explain the origin of the moon. And I'm really sorry I can't show you some pictures that uh, I'd love to, but uh, William Hartman was... Uh, a planetary scientist working on this idea that a large impact actually was responsible for producing the moon. Based, of course, you, you have a history of impacts etched into the surface of the moon. And uh, so very large impacts. Uh, but could there have been an impact so large that it was actually responsible for producing the moon? And William Hartman, in his calculations, uh, picking up from what the Russians had been working on, Safranov and others had been estimating the sizes of the, of the uh, sort of uh, protoplanetary objects that, that were forming in the early solar system. And he predicted that there would have been a very large impact that would have been expected. In fact, his work with Donald Davis at the Planetary Science Institute they proposed that there was a, a very large impact and that this impact somehow ejected enough matter into orbit that it would coalesce and form the moon. He, pre he d predicted this in 1975, but there were a lot of things he couldn't answer at the time. And, uh, and 
But I'll get to those in just a moment. So this turned out to be, uh, later on, it was modified to be a Mars-sized planetesimal that was predicted to have collided with the proto-Earth and caused mantle debris to be thrown up into orbit, coalescing into the moon. Uh, I'd love to show you the paintings. William Hartman not only was a good planetary scientist, he was an excellent artist, too. And so I wanted to show you some of his um, excellent uh, paintings there. There were a lot of supporting factors that came out immediately in support of this model. The low density of the moon compared to the uh, density of the Earth tells us that there's very low iron content in the moon, and that is uh, consistent with this impact model that is involving the Earth's mantle. Uh, the parched conditions of the, the lunar rock, it, that's expected actually from a very, very high temperature origin as, as this would have provided and it would have removed water and volatiles. The identical oxygen isotope ratio is actually uh, consistent with this model as well because a, a lot of mixing would have taken place with this kind of impact, throwing up a lot of the, the Earth's mantle together with some of the debris from the incoming, uh, in the incoming impactor and the Earth's spin axis tilt of 23 and a half degrees, and the Moon's orbital inclination of five degrees. All of this, and, and its large angular momentum, consistent with an impact scenario. A lot of support for this kind of model, but you're overcoming this paradigm shift. And so there's gonna be a lot of skepticism. The, the skepticism is, is well warranted because how can an impact eject matter into orbit? For one thing, uh, Simple Newtonian gravity and Newtonian mechanics leads you to expect that if, if you have something thrown up from the surface of the Earth, it goes into an elliptical orbit, it's gonna come back around and collide with the Earth again, or it's going to achieve escape velocity and not come back. So how do you achieve throwing up debris that actually stays into orbit? That's one uh, challenge. And then the other question is then, how does this ejected matter actually uh, accrete into one moon rather than lots of little moonlets, excuse me. Um, and to his rescue came a colleague that was working independently on this same idea at the same time, but working at it from a different angle uh, using computer simulations. Cameron and his colleague Ward, in that uh, at both at the same time period, had been considering this and their computer simulations were suggesting that a Mars-sized object impacting at a glancing angle could indeed uh, result in sufficient portions being thrown up and actually remain in orbit to form the moon. In the same, in the same way that the gravitational torque uh, of the Earth provides uh, uh, a uh, increased uh, orbital uh, radius of, of the moon to this day. So this gravitational torquing mechanism was discovered from his computer simulations. Um, the resulting debris from this kind of impact at uh, greater than 40, or at least 45 degrees would allow enough debris to be up in orbit and it would coalesce in less than 10 years into a one moon orbiting just beyond the Roche limit of the Earth, about 2.4 Earth radii away with the Earth day 
only five hours long. So a very rapidly spinning Earth still. Giving, it's, this gave the Earth a very rapid spin. Uh, the Earth-Moon system, a large angular momentum. And uh, so uh, the Earth day is, has slowed down as the Moon has spiraled away from the Earth since then. Uh, so this paradigm shift took place and the collision ejection theory of the moon, as it came to be known, uh, came to be accepted as the, uh, the most the leading model of the moon's origin. And so rather than an, a terrestrial or an extraterrestrial model for the moon's origin, you see something that involves both. Now, this is where it comes to the analogy in thinking about human origins. And it's not a perfect analogy in any sense, but I think it's a useful one. And that is, we've uh, always tended to present models of human origins either in a naturalistic sense or as a supernatural event. It's always tended to be one or the other. And we have so much conflict, it seems, uh, taking place with each group arguing evidence for for one scenario or the, or the other. And so the former, the naturalistic scenario, focuses on the process by which humans arose, whereas the latter focuses on the involvement of a creator God. And my question to all of us, and, and, and to the, certainly to the students I teach, is must we think of our origin as an either-or scenario? I mean, the moon, looking at the moon, it, it can teach us something. Now, I'm not going to talk much about the science, uh, but uh, I think I, I respect scientists like Dr. Rick Potts, who has devoted uh, years of work to investigating human origins. And there's evidence of hominid fossils. And of course, uh, last night, uh, Dr. Francis Collins talked about the DNA evidence for common ancestry. Um, the science to me suggest uh, that science uh, is strongly supporting the idea of common ancestry. But a lot of Christians, I'm sorry, five minutes, no problem. Uh, a lot of uh, Christians look at scripture and find reasons for, for not accepting that kind of scenario. But I'd like to point out that there's been many recent scholarly attempts to try to get to the heart of what Genesis 1 is all about and not look at it from the eyes of our 20th or 21st century Western mindset, but trying to get back into the eyes of the original Hebrew audience to try to understand how they would have perceived Genesis 1. What would the messages that they would have taken away from that uh, creation account be? And... Uh, particularly John Walton in his recent book, The Lost World of Genesis 1, which I, I recommend, uh, it, it's an attempt to, to do just that. And, and in doing so, he emphasizes that this is an account that stresses function and purpose in creation, not physical origins. And I also have, have great respect for Jack Collins in his work on uh, Genesis 1 through 4, it's not exactly the, the same perspective as John Walton, but still, there's uh, an increased emphasis on function and purpose in creation rather than physical origins. And so, 
I, I try to encourage people, if you want to remain true to scriptures as a Christian, um, you can still accept good science. There's, there's not necessarily a strong conflict between them. Let me conclude then. The origin of the moon, I think it provides a wonderful illustration to us. Whereas we had a paradigm before that it had to be one kind of extraterrestrial or terrestrial, now we see that there's a model that, that involves both elements. This collision ejection theory appears to be the best explanation for the origin of the moon. And this paradigm shift took place because of hard evidence in the form of lunar rock samples giving us clues as to its origin. And then likewise, we've, we've got a lot more evidence today uh, in the form of, of DNA, in the form of fossils, in forms of uh, lots of studies on our origins scientifically, and, as I might add, a lot of, of recent scholarly attempts to understand Genesis 1 that I think we should, we should uh, take note of. And so we may have a shift away from what has been taking place and, and what I've seen as uh, being promoted as either a naturalistic origin of, of humans or a supernatural event. And perhaps we need to, to think more uh, inclusively of both being possible. And so evidence may lead us to the conclusion that both a natural process and supernatural input are involved in our origin. Thank you. Questions? Yes. I'll repeat the question. Yes. Let me see if I understand your question correctly. Uh, you're talking about the origin of the moon, right? Yes. And if we take that origin and extend it, extrapolate it, as you say, in an analogous fashion to account for a fusion of forces that provide another explanation for the creation of the Right. Okay. Right, right. I, I, I understand your question. Uh, my colleagues back at Laterno gave me some good uh, critiques of my talk here. And, and the one critique was that the origin of the moon, whether it was a terrestrial model or extraterrestrial model, these are all naturalistic scenarios. And so you, you kind of extrapolated that to talking about now naturalistic and supernaturalistic uh, components to the origin of humanity. And so I said, yes, it's an imperfect model uh, or, or imperfect analogy. So uh, the origin of the moon, my only idea there is to try to emphasize we can, get, we can undergo a paradigm shift away from an either-or scenario. That's my only uh, thing that I'm trying to emphasize. 
It doesn't have to be one or the other. It can be both. And so we should continue to look at ways in which it is both. And I, as a Christian believer, we accept that, uh, that God created us. So there is a supernatural component to our origin. But uh, I also believe that doesn't negate that God used physical processes as well. And so, yes, we should continue both lines of research. I don't... Mm-hmm. Are there any responses for, from the evangelical communities, especially sort of young earth, um, to the new ideas of a formation of a moon that might be you know, later than the creation of the earth? Yes. And, um, you know, obviously, this sort of messes up the, 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 the schedule of a six-day Right. The question is, do I get any responses from the younger community about this Origin of the moon, uh, origin of the moon. Which, if you are committed to a six or seven thousand year old universe, uh, obviously this um, model for the moon's origin is not going to be acceptable because you're talking about a uh, 4.5 billion year old moon in this scenario, not a not a young moon. Um, yeah, I, I, that that's a tough issue to deal with because. Um, I'm assuming that you're going to accept uh, the, the results of scientific research here and what we've learned from going to the moon. I mean, we went to the moon. We, we've learned some ma- amazing things uh, by bringing back uh, these earth rocks or the lunar rocks. Why throw that away? Don't throw that away. Don't let your understanding of Scripture limit you from learning about this uh, universe that we live in. And there's an amazing testimony here. And so I I just try to encourage other Christians to let the testimony of of this universe uh, uh, and let the testimony of the rocks speak to us and and learn something from it. And and hopefully you'll come away with your uh, faith in God strengthened. You won't walk away from your faith you'll draw closer to your God and say, yes, I, I can now see God in a, in a much more marvelous way because of it. Additional questions? Okay, well, let's thank Stephen once yeah. again. I do, I do have an announcement I have to make, and that is those of you who are interested in purchasing the uh, Francis Collins DVD, which I certainly am, and I will foot-raise all of you to the Patreon. It's now available. So,